Hey, Neighbors Church, Dan and Alexis here. It's early October, and by the time this conversation posts, we're actually going to be one day post-election. <laughs> if you're listening to this, we are so grateful that the world hasn't ended. Thank God. <laughs> or maybe the world has ended, and we're just sitting here in our closet talking to ourselves because the world has imploded all around us. Well, we do have our per- non-perishables and our water bottles in the closet, so we'll make So maybe it. at this point, we're listening to this podcast while we're just trying to survive in the attic. And we're eating ramen noodles. Maybe monkeys are taking over the world. <laughs> we should make a movie about that. Anyways, that being said, um, it's safe to say with how intense things were pre-election, um, we're kind of doubting that post-election, everyone is suddenly just getting along and everything is great. Um, it's most likely that emotions are running on overdrive, uh, people's nerves are thin, and everything still feels explosive. Um, these are all the things that we've been caught up in, and I'm sure we're continuing to be caught up in. And so through this season, um, Dan and I have really been meditating on what may be one of the more neglected fruits of the Spirit, and we thought it'd be cool to have a conversation about it. And that is self-control. Self-control. How fun does this sound to talk about? I'm actually really excited about it. Um, Over these last months, we've seen the terrible effect of humans reacting to one another with less and less self-control. Um, from seemingly insignificant things like lashing out with our tongue and doing damage, all the way to tempers being lost and lethal violence against humans. Loss of control results in loss of life in small ways and in big ways, and we've seen that. I think most pointedly, we see this example so clearly in the scriptures with the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And acting on their desire, Adam and Eve, without self-control, lost the vibrant life they had in the garden with their father. Daily, they got to enjoy the peace and safety of that garden place where they experienced unashamed intimacy with one another and with their father. But when they ate that fruit, they lost that way of being and they were banned outside the garden. They lost the life they had there. And from that tragic point on, they struggled and they toiled and more sin was brought into the world, their loss of control resulted in the life they knew. That's a really fascinating, that's insightful, babe. Like that's a fascinating way to think about sin and the fall of humans, that the fall of humans was instigated by a lack of self-control. Like this is more than uh, our mama is telling us to mind our manners. This is uh, a lack of self-control wrecked the world. And we are reaping the fruit of that. And I I think, as Lex and I have been talking about it, there's a few reasons why the topic of self-control is not like in our common vocabulary even. Um, The first is our our culture. If you think about the way that our culture interprets the words self-control, there tends to be a knee-jerk reaction to those words. Um, This society that we find ourselves in actually tends to shun self-control. And so we associate self-control with being archaic and repressive. And there are some schools of thought that even consider self-control as dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's, it's damaging to be repressing and self-controlling. Now, in part, this is an overreaction to the Victorian Puritanism. 
that uh, was handed to us by previous generations. Um, previous cultures, they tended to, and previous generations before us, they tended to deal with their emotions and uh, the impulses that drove our behavior by suppressing it and repressing it. Uh, I think of the generations of my grandfather and, and that have gone before us, and I have a friend that actually calls those generations emotionally constipated. Uh, and now I'll contrast that with our generation. If the previous generations dealt with their emotions and their impulses by suppressing and hiding and repressing them, today our culture deals with emotions and our impulses by expressing them rather than suppressing and repressing them. Now, let's stay balanced here. This has had some really healthy effect uh, in, in our human experience. Uh, but there are also, I think, very unhealthy uh, trajectories that are being set. For example, there's, there's no longer a social stigma about mental health. I've been talking about this with my daughter to some extent. And on college campuses, the discussion around mental health is, is pervasive. And so therapy is now just kind of the new norm. And I, I really don't think that that's a bad thing. But where this can become dangerous, especially in the, in the, in the sense of constant self-expression, is that what therapy can do is create a platform for self-exploration. But if that therapy does not include principles and tools that create self-control for self-expression, then biblically speaking, our soul won't heal. Uh, uncontrolled, unchecked, unfettered self-expression actually is damaging to the soul, as we're going to be talking about here more in detail in a moment. So self-expression, just for the sake of expressing yourself to get it all out, that may feel like a volcano releasing all the pressure in the moment. But if it's not channeled carefully, volcanoes, well, they burn and they destroy things. So really, what we've seen is a progressive step-by-step -step jettisoning of the idea, the nobility, the health of self-control. It's been jettisoned from as far back as maybe the 60s, where the burn the bra and do what you want to do, drop LSD and drop out movement began and uh, opened that door for exploration of expression in the human experience. And it has set that trajectory to where we are today. Uh, that pendulum swing was really just this reaction against harmful asceticism, and in particular against harmful religious asceticism. This is a podcast for Christians. We assume most of you that are listening are Jesus followers, and we recognize that a lot of what has turned people off to the truth and the health and the need for self-control is a reaction against oppressive, Victorian, puritanical, religious rules and asceticism uh, that maybe weren't so helpful and definitely weren't uh, of Jesus's nuance. So like the denial of holy and good desires, enjoying good food, enjoying the movies, recreation, enjoying sex, being in community, having fun, generations gone by before us actually viewed those good things as dangerous and damaging. And so they repressed and suppressed those. And then this this pendulum swing to the other side, the therapy culture that we now live in, there's a lot for us to be considering as we explore this, this idea 
of self-control. And it's not just moral or emotional repression that we react against. In our modern age, we have an entire industry built upon massively restrictive self-control. If you look at the fitness and body image industry, um, you see this extremely restrictive self-control. There are extreme diets that demand huge amounts of denial. And with the rise of a new diagnosis in the clinical world called orthorexia, we're starting to see that when one becomes so obsessed with health food and exercise, they're actually damaging their minds and their bodies. And so you have this picture of a person who's having such restraint, such self-control, hmm. but again, they're actually damaging their body. They're damaging their mind. And their soul. Yeah. 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 And sadly, um, these nutrition and exercise extreme self-control practices lead to issues that are greater like anorexia nervosa, bulimia, those kinds of things. And so now as we're seeing the harmful effects of this, there has been, again, the pendulum swing the other way. And today we're seeing this message of embrace your body as it is, eat what you want, you do you and be confident. And while there's so much good. Yeah, there, there's really a lot of good in that. Yes, there's so much good with it. Um, there's still harm if there isn't that balance and self-control within that. And so you'll notice that as we're talking about, there typically tends to be the pendulum swing. If something was repressive, it swings to excessive. And so we need to have balance. Yeah. Everything within uh, Christian orthodoxy, that is right belief, true belief, lined up belief, orthodoxy, and Christian orthopraxy, what we practice, right practice, or lined up, going with the grain of the universe, practice or behavior. Everything within Christian orthodoxy and orthopraxy, uh, as Jesus followers, it sits always in balance. Humans, we have this tendency to swing the pendulum way right or way left. And Jesus, the perfect human, always aligns us right back in that center. And there's tensions that keep us in that center. We like to think of our Christian beliefs and our Christian behavior, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, like a trampoline. Um, every spring has to be in place for that trampoline to function the way it's supposed to. We all had that friend. We'd go over to their house and they had that like shoddy yard sale trampoline that had like, <laughs> you know, 15 springs missing. And it was just a bummer. You just hated getting on that thing. We all had that friend. They got the brand new trampoline, you know, that house, that house that we all wanted to go to, the brand new trampoline, like every Christmas springs were so tight. That thing was just pulled tight and you'd get on that thing and launch into orbit. <laughs> all the springs of Christian truths and Christian behavior, they have to be in constant tension, pulling against each other. And that tension is actually a good thing. Everything needs to remain tensioned in our Christian life. So for example, we're big on silence, but not just for the sake of being still and quiet. That is tethered by the speech that we then are bringing into the world from our places of silence. Silence is tethered by speech. Speech is shaped by silence. Solitude, when we go to be alone for the introverts, we love but we have to be tethered by a discipline of being in community. And then for the extroverts, you love partying all night. You get energy from being with your friends. You need to practice tethering that discipline of community with 
times of, of, of solitude. Fasting is always for the sake of creating self-control so that you can feast and feasting always should lead to times of fasting. You see these tethers that hold us in tension. So to grow in self-control, uh, we just want to walk you guys through some meditations that have been helping us frame this up and think about it. And the first is, it's not going to be super popular, um, but this is, this is the best starting point. A lack of self-control is sin. Adam and Eve, they wrecked the entire world. The entire cosmos was wrecked because of a moment of a lack of self-control. Sin is simply the dethroning of God, as Don Carson calls it. And Ignatius would say that sin is our committed belief that God doesn't have our highest happiness in his heart. And so it causes us to do things without control and without faith that wreck our personal souls, our lives, our relationships, the people around us. A lack of self-control is sin. The very first and I would say most egregious murder we have in the Bible Right after chapter three, in chapter four, post-fall, is Cain. He loses self-control, and he gives himself over to murderous envy, and he destroys his brother. And we have seen that destruction human to human since that moment. Mm -hmm. The biblical perspective is that all of us have now, because of sin and the effect of sin, we have disordered desires. We have holy and right and aligned desires, and then we have deformed and disordered desires. And our inner emotional activity and impulses, where those, or, where those desires and impulses are disordered or deformed, the biblical narrative, the biblical authors and the great spiritual masters and teachers throughout Christian history have all said, those are not to be acted upon. There is to be restraint there is to be an intentional control, not pressing down or repressing or ignoring, but a spiritual self-control of those disordered desires. Our separation from God and the sin within us, it confuses these desires. And sometimes it's very hard to discern because those desires and those impulses are extremely powerful. This is why silence and solitude become so important to investigate and explore those inward motivations that are so subtle and so powerful. We believe that certain behaviors or achievements or attainments of material things, those are going to satisfy. And so we go after it without restraint. James, the brother of Jesus, he actually says that those things that drive us, that's what leads to war. A lack of self-control is what leads to the wars we see. James says, James 4, 1 through 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You know, this desire piece in the context of self-control is complex. It's actually pretty nuanced. Um, the example from the James passage we're using is desire gone awry. Jealousy and envy lead to rage that then leads to murder. But the desire for something in the case of Cain, for example, was a desire to have the same experience of acceptance as his brother Abel did. And that desire for acceptance was not bad. Yeah, I've, I've honestly always felt bad for Cain. 
It's mm-hmm. like that passage, the longer you ruminate on, on it, you're like, yeah, I totally empathize with Cain. Mm-hmm. I would want the same acceptance. And that desire was a noble God given, uh, desire. Mm-hmm. And so the desire for acceptance is not wrong. We all want that sense of approval. Um, where it went wrong for Cain was when he didn't get that. He didn't get his sacrifice was not accepted. He was unwilling to submit that desire, that desire for acceptance to God's way of fulfilling it. So one example of a good and normal and healthy emotion that can lead to sin is anger. So there are words spoken and behaviors that we observe, that we hear that are honestly going to make us angry because they are wrong. And God is angry about those things. When we see a person innocently Mm. murdered, that should make us angry. That is wrong. And so the crux of the matter is godly anger should lead to godly action under control. But anger that's unleashed without self-control becomes violent and damaging, doing more harm than good. Mm. Yeah, there's a psalm, and I'm forgetting which one it is in the moment. The wrath of man will not produce the righteousness of God. Mm-hmm. And the wrath of man is that anger unchecked. You know, a huge one that we just can't put our heads in the sand about with self-control is Jesus' sexual ethic. Uh, and in our culture, the sexual ethic is do as one pleases as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. Jesus' ethic was sex in the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. And this is, this is huge. This is gigantic. It's funny because I think some people think when humans have, some Christians, I should say, when humans have sexual desire, they're like, oh my gosh, they're thinking God's like freaking out over human beings having sexual desire. (laughs) It's like, uh, (laughs) God actually gave humans the ability physically to experience sexual desire. I think we envision God like, hey, hey, whoa, what are you doing? Don't do that. And that's definitely not the case. I mean, we just, we actually just were able to uh, counsel a young couple and they're on their way to marriage. (laughs) And I, this is the confusion that Christians have with um, sexual self-control and sexual impulse. Uh, this young couple, uh, they were just being very forthright with us, which we really appreciated. And they were like, oh, got to be honest, we're burning. We're burn. The house is burning down because they're really close to getting married. And, and one of them was like, isn't this, a, isn't this a bad reason to get married? And both my wife and I were like, nay. <laughs> this is good. This is holy. If the house is burning down, Paul specifically says, get a ring on it. And I think as Christians, we need to reframe these sexual impulses as noble and beautiful and honorable and God created and God designed. But we have so, so messed up sex that it's like, no, 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 danger, 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 sin, sin, sin. And then you put a ring on it and everybody's mind is supposed to shift. That's a very difficult jump to make. Sex is one of the most powerful acts within the human experience. And God does not confine sex because he's an ogre and he's mean. He doesn't confine or restrain sex to within the parameters of marriage because he doesn't want us to enjoy it. Sex is like a burning fire. The West Coast has been on fire all summer and look at the damage it has done. It shuts down cities And so sex 
is to be confined within the parameters of marriage as God designed it because sex actually is that that culminating moment where two hearts are literally melting together as one. It's like a nuclear fission, fusion, whatever you physicists want to call it, moment. And that is powerful. That's powerful like the sun. But when we let the powerfulness of sex let loose without restraint, without self-control, without the parameters that God has placed it in, we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can play around with the sun and not be burned down. And we see the effect of that tragically in across our culture. We see the burning down of souls uh, because of the unleashing of the sexual power uh, apart from the parameters that God has placed it in. And so if lack of self-control is a sin, the second thing that we've really been considering, if lack of self-control is a sin that diminishes flourishing, flourishing, we also need to recognize that this same sin, it warps our understanding of the need for self-control that leads to flourishing. Sin deceives us. And it paints the picture that, well, if I exercise self-control, I'm going to be imprisoned. This is the lie of our cultural moment, actually. If I restrain myself and I'm not able to express myself as fully as I see fit, then I'm not at liberty. I'm not being free. We think that being controlled is not being free when in fact, self-control leads to true liberation. We believe the lie that only full and immediate expression of our first emotions, those sexual impulses must be acted on, our active desires must be gone for fully, and then we'll have a sense of freedom. And yet, for some reason, sin enables us to deny the fact that when we live that way, it leads us, it chains us really to an entrenched immaturity. We, we remain forever toddlers, two-year-olds. We become addicts. A lack of self-control is really what leads the synopsis of the brain, the dopamine and serotonin structures by pattern to become addicted. And then we find ourselves with a lack of self-control. Rather than being liberated, we are imprisoned. Proverbs 25, 28 states, like a city whose walls are broken through, is a person who lacks self-control. So acting on our every desire and our impulses is an attack and assault on our souls, so to speak. It opens us up to um, this way of having no protection. It's like we've lost a covering that guards us. Mm. Um, Patrick Deneen has written an entire treatise on the failings of our current cultural way of thinking as it pertains to our social and political setting in his short little book, Why Liberalism Failed. He writes, By ancient and Christian understandings, liberty was the condition of self-governance, whether achieved by the individual or by a political community. Because self-rule was achieved only with difficulty, requiring extensive habituation in virtue, particularly self-command and self-discipline over base but insistent appetites, the achievement of liberty required constraints upon individuals' choice. He goes on to say, and contrast that by saying, it is freedom. Freedom is understood to be the greatest freedom from external constraints, including customary norms. The only limitation on liberty in this view should be duly enacted laws consistent with maintaining order of otherwise unfettered individuals. Yeah, that, that, that is the cultural moment's perspective. 
the only form of liberty that our culture understands is to unleash unfettered individuals with consent being kind of the moral guide, the moral pinnacle. Self-control has just gone out the window with that contextual setting. So it begs the question, what are we to do as Christians living in this moment? In the aquarium that we swim in, it's an aquarium filled with the celebration of unfettered individuals. Dan and I would contend that the first step towards self-control is repentance. If self-control, the lack of self-control is a sin, our first step towards self-control is repenting of it, of repenting of our lack of self-control. Turning from this form of sin to Jesus and receiving true freedom in his righteousness brings actual freedom in our lives. It actually brings liberation. And so walking in new life that we've been given and having our minds renewed and our souls remade by the spirit brings our liberation. And that's really important for us to consider. Self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you prior to becoming a Christian, the notion of self-control was laughable in my life. But post-conversion, the moment I was forgiven by Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I had this nagging thing all the time now, deep, in with, deep within my being, like, oh, I need to check that language I need to check that thought. And I had never experienced that. I mean, I had experienced a cultural consciousness and an innate kind of awareness, but I just kind of blasted through it like, I don't know, like dynamite through a tin cup. And (laughs) post-conversion, that tin cup actually became the righteous robes of Jesus. And I was suddenly like, whoa, I am clothed in righteousness. I need to control these broken, disordered impulses. Here's what Paul said uh, to a young pastor in Ephesus named Timothy, trying to encourage the kid. It says, Timothy, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The God who created the sun, the God who created the cosmos indwells you. The God who was embodied in the flesh of Jesus and lived perfectly self-controlled humanness. He now has given you a spirit of self-control. Later, Paul would say to the community in Galatia, the fruit of the spirit, we love this one. The fruit of the spirit is love. We love that. Joy, give me some of that. Peace, I can't wait. Forbearance, oh, I don't know. That's a big word for patience. I don't know if that's a good one, I guess. Kindness, we're about it. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then he caps it off with the fruit of the spirit is self-control. It is self-control. We think of the fruit of Christian ministry and Christian life as people are getting saved and all this stuff is happening around us outwardly. St. Paul would say, as you're growing in the spirit, the fruit that's born of that is greater and greater self-control. And he goes on, he says, against such things, there's no law. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Self-control, you guys, it's a muscle and it has to be trained. And that's a way, that idea of self-control being a muscle that needs to be trained, that's a way of agreeing with what Paul is saying when he says, we crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're not practicing self-control across the spectrum of decisions that we make every day, getting victory and failing, but you're, you're practicing, mm-hmm. if you're not using it every single day, that muscle atrophies. And the only way you're going to get stronger is rep by rep. It is a practice. Uh, 
Ilya Kipchoge. <laughs> I said it right. Uh, he's the, uh, the world record holder for the marathon, a time of 201.39. Just for you, anybody that is a runner, that's a dead sprint. That's a dead sprint for like two hours. He actually just beat that time, and he is the only human to ever run a marathon in under two hours. Yeah. The, that I, is nuts. Yeah. Nike spent like millions of dollars to have him run in this like super streamlined way with behind this car with a, I mean, it was set up anyway, incredible. And uh, he's been described as the greatest modern uh, marathoner of our, of our era or ever. And he has this, this great quote about the nature of discipline and self-control. Um, he says, only the disciplined ones are free in life. If you are undisciplined, you're a slave to your emotions. You're a slave to your passions. The best time to plant a tree was 25 years ago. The second best time is today. Plant the tree of self-discipline today. So this may be helpful for us to hear and encouraging. We have volition. That is, God created us with the ability to decide. Uh, and another inherent danger that we have in our current therapeutic cultural moment is an entrenched inability to take full and total responsibility for our personal choices and behaviors. There can be kind of a, an entrenched finger pointing at everybody else as to why we do what we do and why we act the way that we act. The truth is we are influenced and shaped by our memories and our mentors, but we aren't controlled by them. In other words, we're not helpless victims of our internal drivers. That's just, that is not what the Bible reveals our anthropology, our humanness to be. And the second thing is we're also not just instinctual animals. As much as our atheistic friends would want us to just be, you know, monkeys with bigger brains, the truth is God gave us the prefrontal cortex. That's what makes our heads so big in the best way. It makes that brain so big in there. And that thing is like a break. It is a tremendously powerful and miraculous break that enables the human to think and to decide to not be taken captive by the internal world of hormones and chemicals and impulses and emotions and instincts. And so self-control is what differentiates us from animals. I'd go so far as to say self-control is a key piece in what it means to be an image bearer, reflecting the will and the volition of our God who controls his being for the well-being of his creation. You know, when we look to Jesus and his life on earth, he embodied self-control. We can look to him as our example. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. He wasn't laying out a rule of life that he himself didn't practice. Literally everything Jesus commanded and taught for our daily living was so that we would experience true life and intimacy with him and others. Literally, he wants to bring us back into that garden intimacy with him. And so ultimately, because more often than not, we abandon self-control and we take the fruit like Eve did in the garden, Jesus had to deny himself. He took up his cross and he died for us. His self-denial and control of self was for the other. It was for us. This is true kingdom living, you guys. We don't submit our desires, our emotions and words and actions under Jesus's rule just for the sake of repression and religiosity. In contrast, we use our desires, we use our emotions, our words and our actions for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
So there you have it. As apprentices of Jesus, you know, take those three extra breaths. Start practicing and repping out that self-control. It will lead to a liberation that you could have never imagined. He indwells you. He has given you a spirit of self-control, the fruit, the fruit of the spirit, the same spirit that hovered over all of creation and put into order. Creation can order our desires in alignment with Jesus, who we are one with. Shalom, friends. Shalom. Shalom.